This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360, the truce ends in Gaza, but the questions about who knew what and when about what Hamas was planning for October 7th are just beginning for Israeli officials. Also tonight, two court rulings, one civil, one criminal, both saying the former president is not immune for actions he took as president leading up to January 6th. Plus, a finale for the fabulist George Santos, kicked out of the House, and that is not a lie. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin with Israel-Hamas and the first day of fighting after a seven-day truce in Gaza. Israeli airstrikes resuming today in northwest Gaza and, according to Hamas's interior ministry, also targeting sites in the southern cities of Khan Yunus and Rafah. The IDF dropped leaflets into the area today, calling Khan Yunus, uh, Khan Yunus quote, a fighting zone. Hamas, for its part, resumed rocket attacks into Israel. As for the hostages, sources are telling us that both Israeli and American officials believe Hamas continues to hold a number of women taken from the Nova Music Festival on October 7th. An IDF spokesman tonight putting the number of women and children still captive at 17 out of 136 hostages in all. Talks to free them continue in Qatar, all this against the backdrop of last night's detailed and damning report that Israeli leaders dismissed warnings of Hamas's attack plans for more than a year leading up to the 7th. In a moment, former Israeli President, uh, uh, um, Prime Minister Ehud Barak's take on that and renewed fighting. Also, what CNN's John Miller is learning from his sources in the intelligence community. First, the latest from CNN's Matthew Chance. This is what Israel vowed would happen if Hamas stopped releasing its hostages. After a seven-day pause and more than 100 freed, Gaza is being pounded again. Israeli officials say military pressure will force Hamas to release more. Having chosen to hold on to our women, Hamas will now take the mother of all thumpings. Israel says it was Hamas that broke the truce, firing rockets out of Gaza, striking Israeli tanks. But it's inside the Gaza Strip where the intensity of this war has resumed. Hospitals already overwhelmed, now facing a new flood of casualties. We cannot see more children with the wounds of war, with the burns, with the shrapnel littering their body with the broken bones. Inaction by those with influence is allowing the killing of children. This is a war on children. Amid US calls to protect civilians, Israel has distributed leaflets in Gaza with links to this online map, dividing the entire territory into a grid. Israel says it's warning Palestinians which blocks to avoid. I'm asking you to look at this map carefully, this Israeli military spokesman says in Arabic, and move from your residence as instructed. But with unreliable internet access, it's unclear how many Gazans will get the message. It's unclear also now when there will be more hostages released. Mediators say talks to free more are ongoing despite the fighting. But until there's a new pause, relief for so many families may have to wait. Well, Anderson, behind the scenes, negotiations are continuing to try and agree a new pause in the fighting and, of course, to get more uh, hostages released. But tonight, for the first time in more than a week, Gaza is once again being shaken by Israeli bombs. 
Matthew Chance, thank you. Let's go to CNN's Jeremy Diamond with a view of the fighting from Ashkelon near Israel's border with northern Gaza. Jeremy, so what have you been seeing this evening? Well, Anderson, it's been uh, relatively quiet over the last hour, but earlier this evening we saw heavy military activity inside the Gaza Strip, uh, flares, uh, explosions happening inside of Gaza, but also the most significant barrage of rockets being fired from Gaza into Israel that I have seen in weeks. We saw dozens of rockets being fired from northern Gaza into Israel, including towards our position in Sterot, Israel. Uh, we heard very loud explosions as the Iron Dome system intercepted those rockets uh, right above our position. And what's most significant about this is the fact that those rockets, we could actually see the rockets coming up from uh, Gaza in the northeasternmost city of Beit Hanun, which is a city where the Israeli military has been operating on the ground for weeks now. And despite the fact that the Israeli military has said that they are in control of northern Gaza, this just goes to show that Hamas still has the ability to operate there, still has the ability to fire rockets from there towards Israeli towns and cities. It also comes, of course, after a week during which Hamas, according to military analysts, may have had the opportunity to regroup and to, uh, you know, reassess effectively move its operations around during that time period. That was a concern that military analysts had of that fragile truce that we saw over the week. But the Israeli military is not only once again carrying out its bombing campaign in Gaza, but also moving its ground operations further south into southern Gaza. That is what Israel's military and political leadership has been telegraphing for weeks now. And we have watched as it, that plan has started to move into action today. Of course, the result of that, the result of the bombing campaign in particular in southern Gaza today, resulting in the deaths of 178 people, according to the Hamas-controlled Hamas Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza. And of course, once again, we are seeing devastating images of people wounded and injured, including women and children. Anderson. Jeremy Diamond, thanks very much. I want to get some perspective now from Ehud Barak, former Prime Minister of Israel. I spoke to him just before airtime. Mr. Prime Minister, what's your response to this reporting from the New York Times that Israeli intelligence had obtained a blueprint for the Hamas attack more than a year before October 7? It's basically true. Uh, the journalist, Dr. Bergman, is, uh, is, uh, has very good sources. It's basically true. Probably the investigation committee will find more. Do you believe that a report like that would have gone all the way to the top, to the prime minister's? No, I don't think that Netanyahu could be held responsible for the fact that there was no tactical kind of uh, uh, early warning or so. That's a huge failure of our intelligence. There are uh, high-level members of the military, the intelligence services, who have accepted responsibility for, for, for their part in the failures of October 7th. The prime minister has not. Do you think that's something he should do at this stage? Look, I saw that in any normal uh, normal country, he would uh, resign on the 8th of October in the morning or in the evening. And in the UK, if he would not have resigned, his members of cabinet would have called upon him and uh, convinced him, so to speak, to resign. But Israel is not a normal place in this regard. So he tried to survive in spite of all uh, kind of uh, evidence. He basically ran this policy that uh, Hamas is an asset and the Palestinian Authority is a liability for 
five years and was ready to bribe them with the protection money, I called it a Qatari protection money in cash that amounts to to 1.5 billion over these five years. And uh, half of it, about half of it went to equip, train and, uh, and prepare this uh, attack. It's, uh, so it's anyhow, it's a major, major uh, what, what, what kind of failure. What you're saying, which some viewers may not understand, I just want to clarify, you're pointing out that you're saying Netanyahu was essentially propping up Hamas and undercutting the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. The idea of that was that because Hamas would be unacceptable on the world stage, that there wouldn't be a two-state solution because yeah. the, the, the Palestinian Authority was viewed as so weak and corrupt yeah. and Hamas was the only major player, so nobody would accept that. And that was a huge miscalculation. Yeah. Basically, Netanyahu said in his own words that whoever supports blocking the path towards two-state solution should support his attitude of uh, paying the, the Hamas these three, three million cash per month. There are a lot of people now, hundreds of thousands of people in the South. Is it possible to wage war against Hamas on the ground in the South with all those people around? I think that we will see certain uh, differences in styles because of the different nature of the problem in the South after uh, all the the, uh, citizens from the North were moved to the South. It's too too condensed in the or too dense in population uh, uh, to run the same kind of uh, airstrikes that we had in the in the north. But there will be a lot of uh, pointed attacks against targets in Hanyunis, Rafa, and any other place where we feel uh, there are uh, terrorist or Hamas kind of uh, forces or, or governing capabilities. But uh, when we look at the overall picture, we should bear in mind the following. When the armed forces got the directive to destroy Hamas' uh, physical and uh, kind of uh, reigning capabilities, they said clearly to the political level that it will need uh, many months, probably more. And uh, uh, somehow everyone knows from our experience that usually you don't have it. Our uh, legitimacy usually erodes within uh, several uh, uh, weeks or few months. Uh, so this uh, uh, contradiction or gap had to be closed. That's responsibility of the government, of the prime minister, mm-hmm. to make sure that the two clocks are synchronized for reasons unexplainable or probably explainable, but uh, but not very complementing to our government. This gap had not been closed. Former Israel Prime Minister Ehud Barak, thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to talk more now what the former prime minister was talking about there, what he described as a huge intelligence failure. Senior Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller is here. Um, people have used the term this is a failure of imagination. You don't think it's a failure of imagination no, or of I, intelligence? I don't. I think uh, a failure of imagination, which is a term coined by the 9-11 Commission, referred to using passenger airplanes flown by terrorists as missiles. Al-Qaeda imagined it. We failed to imagine it before they did, and we didn't know about it. Um, you can't say it's a failure of imagination when, when you look at the reporting of Ronan Bergman and Adam Goldman from the Times, they say the Israelis actually had the 40-page planning book. You don't need to imagine. It was all laid Very out. Very detailed, it. exactly how the attack took place. And you're saying it's not a failure of intelligence, it's a failure of actual leadership. 
Well, that's right, because a failure of intelligence usually means your intelligence collection fails. You didn't find out about it. They did. Or your intelligence analysis fails. Uh, you didn't figure out what the it means. The analysts were right on target. On the analysts were pushing this, saying we've got to consider this real. And the leadership, and that's where the failure is. The failure is uh, military and intelligence leadership. The burning question that has not been approached yet, either in that article um, or with anybody coming forward to saying here's the answer is, when they had that intelligence and that analysis, how far up the chain did it make it? Did Netanyahu, the prime minister, did the, who saw it? Exactly. This is the kind of level of intelligence, based on my experience in the office of the director of national intelligence at the FBI, where we briefed in the White House regularly, that would have ended up on the president's you desk. You would think a shocking report that says Hamas has these capabilities that Israel doesn't even realize they have, and they're, they're, they're imagining and planning this massive attack... You would think that would go to Prime Minister Netanyahu. You would think that. And you would think if it didn't right away, because they considered it because of confirmation bias, it's not how we're thinking. So we're thinking it's possible but not likely that when reservists on the fence line, and I've been following these reports, were reporting suspicious activity, men showing up with maps, bulldozers being pulled in where there was no construction. Doing a trial run where they were executing hostages. Where they saw the actual training right. you know, happening in camps and saw communications with the results of that, that one thing would be added to another, which would be added to another, which should make, as they said before 9-11, all the lights flashing red. We didn't see that here. We saw the opposite. So... There's going to be a reckoning, and it's not just between the public officials and the politicians. Anderson, you know this because you've been talking to them nightly for weeks. When the families of those taken hostage, when the families of those killed, when the families of those you know, left for dead and raped, when those families form that family's group, the organized group, and they demand answers, mm. um, this is going to be something that the government um, is going to you know, probably not survive. The, uh, I mean, the, the, what sort of capability, I mean, it's impressive that they were able to get this report. I mean, the fact that, you know, they had a detailed report by Hamas a year ago shows they do have, I mean, because that was the big question. How could this have possibly happened and they didn't know about it? The intelligence people did know about it. It just didn't. Right. And I mean, You've got the report, so that's a paper document you can look through. But you've got the signals intelligence where they're picking up reports on the training. You've got the witness reports from the reservists seeing activity on the fence line. Um, that's way too much to write off in the spirit of confirmation bias, which is it just doesn't fit with our political assessment. It's also incredible. You think they had like, you know, in one military location on the border, six people on duty that day, given they knew this plan was at least out there. John Miller, thank you. Thanks. Next, two court rulings on the former president's claim that he cannot be held legally accountable for trying to overturn the 2020 election because he was acting in his official capacity. And later somewhere, George Washington is smiling, mythical Saint cherry Paul. tree and all, after the George who could not tell the truth, George Santos is expelled from Congress. Are we, are we really going All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 
59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. We're now on our breaking news that the federal judge overseeing the former president's indictment on election interference has denied his attempt to dismiss charges based on a claim of presidential immunity. At one point in her ruling, uh, the judge, Tanya Chutkin, writes, quote, defendant's four-year service as commander-in-chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade the criminal accountability that governs his fellow citizens. This decision comes the same day as another setback for the former president of federal court in Washington. A three-judge appeals court panel decided he can be sued in civil court related to his actions during the January 6th riot at the Capitol. The decision was unanimous, sought to distinguish between campaign speech and official actions of a president. It's a victory for the Capitol Police and lawmakers behind three separate cases affected by the decision, plus others who may now seek civil damages as well. Perspective on all this from CNN political analyst Maggie Haberman, senior political correspondent for The New York Times, also the author of Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. Also, Caroline uh, Polisi, she's a White House, uh, she's, a, excuse me, white collar criminal defense attorney. She's also a lecturer at Columbia Law School. How big, Maggie, of a blow to the uh, former president is this? Look, it was always a long shot that this was going to go through or that Chutkin was going to rule on his side. She's made very clear in previous rulings how she views some of the claims that Trump has been making or his lawyers have been making. But what this does do is it starts the clock on an appeal that they are going to have go through the courts, possibly go up to the Supreme Court. Uh, No one knows how the Supreme Court will rule, if they will even take it up. They don't have to. They have generally not sided with Trump on any of his election-related issues. They obviously have on other issues. Um, If they send this back or if they rule against him, the clock then starts on the trial, but this buys time for his team. So this is not a surprising ruling, but it is a very, very lengthy ruling. And it refers to the, the Nixon pardon. It refers to a number of things that counter what Trump's team is arguing. Caroline, what stood out to you in these rulings? Yeah, I think, look, earlier today when the D.C. Circuit came out with the ruling with respect to the civil context, that was an easier bar to meet. Presidential immunity is really, um, you know, a thing that has been recognized by the Supreme Court since Nixon versus Fitzgerald. Trump was trying to push it further in the criminal context. Not surprising that Chutkin waited, I think, for sort of her superiors to come out with with the ruling uh, this afternoon. And then immediately, I agree with Maggie, I think she's she wants to keep that March 4th trial date. Mm -hmm. This is the one thing that could potentially throw a wrench in those plans. If the case has somehow stayed pending an appeal, certainly, I, I think he certainly will appeal this ruling um, as well as the D.C. Circuit ruling. And um, I think it is right for Supreme Court review. So do you think it's likely it would be stayed? 
Um, you know, just as Maggie was saying, you never know what the Supreme Court is going to do. They can take it. They cannot. They could stay. They could not. Um, but I think that that is sort of the, the, the question mark here with respect to that. It's looking like more and more like that's going to be the only trial that will sort of get in under the gun before uh, the election. Is it clear to you, Maggie, what other uh, arguments the president might make to try to get this thrown out? I think this was a big one. I think if I think getting it thrown out is going to be very, very hard. This was really it. This was the shot. It's possible someone was suggesting to me today that the Supreme Court could take up the gag order issue. That seems a little less likely than mm -hmm. this one, just because this is a presidential power issue and it's a little broader. Um, that The other one is specific to Trump as a defendant. I, I think this is it in terms of their shot of getting it thrown out entirely. Next up becomes just, you know, trying for an acquittal or trying for a hung jury or trying that. Those are their best hope. This is the, this is a case that being tried in D.C., Trump's allies and advisors think is unlikely to go his way, just based on the events and based on what the jury pool will be. Um, but that's down the road. There was also, Maggie, the, the pretrial hearing in the Georgia election case. What stood out to you there? Well, it was interesting listening to this argument that the trial ought to start. I think it was, there was some suggestion it should start in 2029 or something like that. I mean, well, well, well down the, the, the road. What you've heard over and over again from the Trump lawyers is there's such a volume of discovery. This is such an exotic case. And they've said this in various ones. We need time to go through everything for discovery. We need time to look at the evidence. In the Mar-a-Lago documents case, there are clearance issues there. There actually are in the January 6th case, too, although it's a, a little less so. Um, that It doesn't surprise me that they're talking about a delay. A delay of that much was surprising to me, and I would be mostly surprised if it works. And in Georgia, the president's attorneys are arguing that it, this violates Trump's free speech, right? Yeah. And they, by the way, they made that argument um, today in the check-in motion as well, which which she denied. But the 2029 date, you know, that was under the scenario in which um, the judge asked Trump lawyers, well, what would happen if he were to be elected president? Essentially, it would stop the clock on um, that, that time to, to, to prosecute. But... Um, I have a different perspective because I'm the defense attorney. I think the August 2024 date is a bit aggressive. There are there's a backlog in the criminal in, in Fulton County, Georgia, criminal court. Um, and, you know, it cuts both ways. Any criminal defendant uh, shouldn't be you know, above the law. I, I think uh, Fannie Willis is trying to push this case through. She wants to get it in before the election. I think mm -hmm. it's pretty apparent. Yeah. It, Maggie, which of these cases do you think the former president is most concerned about? I think he's concerned about all of them, honestly. I think that he's more concerned about the federal ones. The the documents case in particular concerns him, except for the judge in that case, which is one of his own appointees, and the fact that it's a more favorable jury pool just based on the mm -hmm. counties around the courthouse. The January 6th case angers him uh, for a variety of reasons, and you can see it when he talks about the election. It, it relates to uh, an event that he considered uh, humiliating, which is having to leave the White House. And so I think all of these things tie together. He's angry about the Manhattan indictment for different reasons. I mean, there, there's no case that makes him feel good here. They're all they're all bad. But they are most they are most concerned right now about the January 6th one because they think that's the one that's likely as nice. It's amazing to me that the humiliation is having to leave the White House as opposed to the humiliation of having his supporters break into the Congress and We've heard him defend. Right. We've heard him defend that. Yeah, so please. that is not something that I have heard him sound uh, any any concession of shame about publicly. Um, to the point about fairness versus a speedy trial, though, I think that you are going to hear that over and over again. And it is the one place or a place where the Trump team 
has a legitimate point about the fact that Trump does have the same rights as any other defendant. Yeah. Caroline Polisi, thanks so much. Maggie Haberman, thank, thank you. you. Appreciate it. Coming up for only the sixth time in U.S. history, a lawmaker was expelled from the House of Representatives. The life, the times, the many lies of George Santos when we return. George Santos, who was rarely any of the things he claimed to be, was expelled from Congress today for being the one thing he truly is, a liar. So tonight, if the 23-count federally indicted alleged money launderer and fraudster wants to tell anyone he's now one of just six people ever to be kicked out of the House, he will be speaking the truth. The fabulist has left the building. Here's a handyman changing the locks on his old office door shortly afterwards, which is probably a wise move. The vote was 311 to 114. It came on the third try, and more than half of his fellow Republicans voted against expulsion. The nays included House GOP leaders Elise Stefanik, Steve Scalise, and uh, Speaker Mike Johnson. It's in spite of a scathing ethics committee report accusing Santos of, among many other things, stealing from his campaign and spending the money on, among other things, Botox and the adult website OnlyFans. The last straw reportedly was this from fellow Republican Max Miller of Ohio. I myself have been a victim of George Santos. You, sir, are a crook. Santos's campaign, he said, fraudulently charged his and his mother's personal credit cards. He's also accused of writing bad checks in both the northern and southern hemispheres, ripping off donations for a disabled veterans dying service dog, lying about being Jewish, lying about being the grandson of Holocaust survivors, and more. Shabbat shalom to everybody. My name is Anthony DeVolder. I always joke, I'm Catholic, but I'm also Jew-ish, as in ish. My grandparents survived the Holocaust. My mom was a 9-11 survivor. Mm. She was in the South Tower, um, and she made it out. She got caught up in the ash cloud. They sent me to a good prep school, so and which was Horstman uh, Prep. I actually went to school on a, on a volleyball scholarship. Told me, I remember specifically, I'm into sports a little bit, that he was a star on the Baruch volleyball team and that they won the league championship. And what can I tell you? Did you graduate team, from Baruch? But, uh, did you graduate from there? Yeah. So did I. I did. I, did. I put myself through college and got an MBA from NYU. I have nothing to hide. Join us now, Congressman Dusty Johnson, Republican of South Dakota, who voted yes on expelling George Santos. I assume that montage just reaffirms your vote uh, in your mind. It certainly would in my mind. Um, were you disappointed that more of your Republican colleagues didn't vote to expel him? I was a little disappointed. Uh, there are really two camps, Anderson. One camp wanted some additional due process protections. I've got no bone to pick with those folks. I think they're wrong. I think there was a lot of due process, but I think their no vote was principled. Then there's a whole bunch of folks who just didn't want Republicans in the House to lose another vote. And I am pretty disappointed with those folks. Yeah, it's interesting because previously you had said if Republicans aren't willing to police their own, this is a quote, how can we possibly look the American people in the eye and tell them that we're willing to police folks on the other side of the aisle, which is a, a respectable thing to say. I mean, it, it's it's, you know, any if any political party isn't willing to police their own, it's it's not a good thing. I just don't care what the letter behind this guy's name is. He is a crook. He has lied about everything seemingly he's ever said. And I know there are some folks who wanted a court conviction before we threw him out. But the reality is that so much of what he's been accused of isn't actually against the law. Hmm. And so at some point we needed to say the facts are not in question. We had an ethics committee that unanimously on a bipartisan basis advanced this report with a breathtaking finding of wrongdoing. 
uh, it was clear it was time for the uh, fantastic George Santos to leave the building. That's interesting that the, the idea that because that was one of the arguments that uh, to, to vote to keep him in, which was that he's not been convicted of a crime. Uh, but your point is some of these things may not have been actually against the law, but they were wrong. Right. A certain number of Americans are concerned with election fraud. Well, it seems like election fraud to me when you invent from whole cloth an entire resume and lie to the voters of the district, give them inaccurate information upon which they base their vote, continue to lie day in and day out while you're in the U.S. House, steal from your campaign accounts. Enough was enough. I get it. We're in a very tribal uh, time in this country where I guess Republicans are supposed to uh, defend all Republican behavior. But uh, for uh, almost a majority of Republicans in the House, uh, this was simply too much. We all saw what happened with Speaker McCarthy's ouster. Do you think with a new speaker getting settled in, with Santos gone, that the GOP conference may be turning a page? I mean, obviously, there's the Matt Gates is the world. But uh, do you think this is the possibility of, of kind of a new chapter? Oh, as long as Matt Gates is running around, I guess I wouldn't want to get too optimistic about how well the House will function. Republicans still have incredibly tight margins. We have a number of exceptionally colorful members that don't really like to get to yes on anything. So I don't, uh, listen, I wouldn't want to have rose-colored glasses on Anderson. It's going to continue to be uh, a difficult 118th Congress. But even given that difficulty, I would say I'm proud of a lot of the things we've done, cutting $2 trillion in spending over the next four years reforming energy siting and welfare reform. There's more of that to come as well in the next year and a month. If Republicans lose the Santos seat, will it still have been worth it to, to get rid of him? I think when you're dealing with these sacred constitutional duties, when you're trying to decide what is right and what is wrong, it's best not to have uh, too much political calculation in your mind. Either guilty, either a guy is guilty or he's not. Either those actions are worthy of expulsion or they're not. We can worry about the political calculation tomorrow. Congressman Dusty Johnson, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Just ahead, three college students of Palestinian descent shot while visiting family in Vermont Thanksgiving weekend. Only one of the three has been released from the hospital, and I'll talk to him next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. The first of three college students of Palestinian descent shot last weekend in, Ver in Vermont has been released from the hospital. Kenan Abdelhamid, Tassin Ali Hamad, and Hisham Awatani were in Vermont uh, for Thanksgiving weekend, hosted by Hisham's family. According to an uncle, the three young men were at the birthday party for an eight-year-old twins when they went for a walk wearing kafiyas, a scarf closely associated with Palestinian identity. That was when they say they encountered a 48-year-old man, Jason Eden, who allegedly shot all three. He's been charged with three counts of attempted second-degree murder. Prosecutors say they don't have the evidence yet to pursue this as a hate crime, but that they're not ruling it out. Two of the young men are still recovering in the hospital. One still has a bullet lodged in his spine. 
Kenan Abdelhamid, who was released earlier this week, joins me now. Thank you so much for, for being with us. First of all, how are you doing? How are your two friends? Oh, thank you for having me. Um, I'm doing all right, you know, taking it step by step. Regarding my two friends, their road for recovery is a bit longer than mine. So I'm hoping everyone could pour more of their support towards them. Can you walk us through what happened initially? I mean, you were there for the holiday weekend. When did you see this person? Uh, usually before we go into Isham's grandmother's house, we go on a walk. So we did that the day before, and I believe the day before that. Uh, so on our way back from the walk, we see this man standing on the porch looking away from us. Uh, and as soon as he looks towards us, he just walks down the steps of his porch, pulls out a pistol, and begins shooting. Uh, he shot my friend Tahseen's first, and then Hisham, and that's when I ran away. Did, did he say anything? I mean, had you ever seen him before? You said you'd went for a walk before. Do you think he saw you previously? Was he waiting? I don't like to make any allegations like that now, but uh, it's definitely a possibility. Mm. But did he say anything to you? Not a single word. Uh, not a single word. Just went down and pulled out a pistol extremely quickly. Um, it definitely seems like a part of a bigger issue uh, regarding uh, the hatred towards Palestinians. When did you realize, I mean, did you realize you'd been shot right away? No. It took me about uh, a minute after jumping the fence, hiding behind one of the houses. And then when I ran to the second house to win uh, the people in there to call 911, I only realized I was shot when they sat me down. It was kind of like a sharp pain. Uh, and then I put my hand on my back, looked at my hand and it was soaked with blood. So- Is yeah, that, that's he, where you were shot, shot in your back? running away. Yes, yeah, exactly here. Uh, this is the exit wound. And authorities haven't yet said whether, uh, they said they, they don't yet have enough evidence to say if it was a hate crime, but they're not certainly ruling it out. Is that, I mean, do you have any other, do you have an opinion on that? I mean, proving a hate crime in the eyes of the people and the eyes of the law are very different things. In the eyes of the law, it does, it, you generally need a lot more evidence, but just logically, even when all three of us met at the hospital, we all said, why do you think? And we all said at the same time, oh, probably because we were speaking Arabic and English or probably because we were wearing the kofiyya. Mm. Uh, there's just, it's just there's no other reason we could think of. If he was looking to kill anyone, he probably would have done that a while back. So, yeah. Had you been concerned in the last weeks, I mean, leading up to this, about safety? I mean, given the tensions, the, the you know, feelings surrounding the, the war? Yes, yeah, I am very concerned for uh, the safety of Palestinians in the United States and obviously in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, it's just part of a system designed to dehumanize Palestinians and the logical conclusion of dehumanization is murder. Uh, I didn't expect it to go to this extent though and having something intellectually known in your head rather than experiencing it firsthand definitely shatters a new type of bubble. Yeah, I mean, to have something like this happen to you, I mean, you, you know, you, one reads about it, you see it, you know intellectually it can happen, but to actually have it happen to you, how does it 
change you? Does it change you? It does change you and uh, it does change a lot of uh, families in Palestine as well. We have a very, very strong sense of community uh, and it kind of just ripples throughout, mm. which I believe is a big reason for the international support is uh, our sense of community and the outcry of every Palestinian when one Palestinian is hurt. Mm. For example, when the other eight-year-old was stabbed, we were all hurt as well. Uh, it's just a collective thing we have and we're very proud of that. Uh, and that's why every Palestinian right now is in anguish for what's happening, especially that the uh, ceasefire has ended. Keenan, I'm so sorry what happened to you and, and to your friends, and I, I wish you a speedy recovery and your friends as well. Thank you so much for being with us. No, thank you. I appreciate it. You take care. Coming up next, public health officials have talked about an epidemic of loneliness in this country and in countries around the world. In New York, Dr. Ruth Westheimer has been named the state's first loneliness ambassador. You may remember her well. She's 95 now, and she joins me ahead. Dr. Ruth Westheimer is best known for her advice on sex, which at 95 she is still giving advice on, but she's also added a new title, New York's Honorary Ambassador on Loneliness. She was named that by New York's governor. This spring, the U.S. Surgeon General issued an official advisory warning that isolation is an epidemic that can be as deadly as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day and poses a greater risk to longevity than obesity or lack of exercise. I spoke with Dr. Ruth Westheimer earlier. So tell me about what made you want this job? Because I do believe that I have some wisdom to give because I'm after all going to be 95. 95. That's amazing. Soon, on June 4th. So Wait a minute, I your birthday is June some... 4th? My birthday is June 3rd. We're Gemini twins. We should travel together, you and me. Uh, totally. I would absolutely travel with you. And we'll take an extra room for the children, so we'll have some privacy. I, I like when I make you smile. What I want to do is to use the same method that I have used with my sex education classes and sex therapy um, practice to teach people how to be of interest so that People don't get bored mm. and to teach people how to be interesting to themselves. Ha and I come up with all kinds of tricks to help you to beat that lonely loneliness. There's so many people who they've lost loved ones or their friends have moved away. It's hard, especially even in a big city. People feel very isolated, even though they're surrounded by many other people. Right. Unless it is hard, but it's not enough to say it's hard. You have to find a remedy of helping how to prevent those people from being so lonely. Mm. And you and I together will come up with all kinds of tricks and... Um, ways of people, making people be interested in you and making people to be interested in wanting to talk to you. Mm. Well, I would love that. I, I, uh, I, I'm doing something about grief right now. I'm doing a podcast about grief. In grief, in loss, there's also this, this sense of loneliness. 
Yeah, I used to tell people there are people like Anderson, there are people who are experts in grief counseling mm. and they should find them. Mm. I'm more in pleasure counseling. <laughs> I'm more on the side of what people should do in order to give each other pleasure so that the other person will want to make another date. Bye-bye, Anderson. All the very best. Okay. And come and okay. see me soon. I would love and to. And make a nice birthday party for your boys. I would happy. I will bring my boys over anytime you want. Bye, Anderson Cooper, <laughs> my good friend. I love you. Thank you. I will oh, say that again. I love you. Yeah, that's pretty good. I do want to see you again. <laughs> Bye, Anderson. Bye. All the best. You too. I like when someone waves at the end of an interview. Bye. Uh, I mentioned my new podcast there. It's called All There Is. It's about grief and loss. And if you point your phone's camera uh, right now at a QR code, which I think we're going to put up right there, uh, you can point your camera at it and a link will show up on your phone for you to click on and listen. Grief is the most universal human experiences. We all have or will experience it. It's really a bond that people share. And yet the loneliness of it is really hard and it always has been for me. Talking about it is the only thing that I know that helps break that loneliness and hearing from others who are living with it and learning from their grief. And that's what the podcast is all about. President Biden is gonna be on the podcast next Wednesday with a very personal conversation with him about grief. But the first episode of the second season is available now and the entire first season is also available now. If you haven't been able to figure out that QR code on the screen, you can get the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen to podcasts. I hope you like it and find it helpful. Coming up next, remembering a trailblazer, retired Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Tonight, retired Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor is being remembered as a trailblazer. The first woman to serve on the nation's highest court died this morning in Phoenix, Arizona. The court said Justice O'Connor died due to complications related to advanced dementia. A child of Texas ranchers who went to graduate magna cum laude from Stanford, she was appointed to the bench by President Ronald Reagan back in 1981. As a moderate conservative, she became a swing vote on the court. And during her tenure, Justice O'Connor upheld abortion rights, affirmative action, and campaign finance rules. Her rulings flowed from a philosophy of judicial restraint. At her confirmation hearing, she said, and I quote, judges are not only not authorized to engage in executive or legislative functions, they're also ill-equipped to do so. That said, she was also a central figure in one of the court's most argued over examples of judicial activism. She sided with conservatives and supported George W. Bush in the case that swung the 2000 presidential election to him. Six years later, after nearly a quarter century as a justice, she retired to take care of her husband who had Alzheimer's disease. She was replaced by Justice Samuel Alito, and abortion and other social issues she supported were eventually overturned as the court became more conservative. In 2018, when she was diagnosed with dementia, she wrote in a letter to the public that she was grateful for her countless blessings. She's survived by her three sons. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.